this series in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we heard the risen Jesus say these words to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, in many ways, these words from Jesus set up the structure of the book of Acts. Like a pebble dropped in a lake that leads to circles of ripples radiating out, that's what happens with the gospel from Jerusalem outward in the book of Acts. The pebble is dropped in the first couple of chapters In Jerusalem, as the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, the gospel is preached by the Spirit-empowered apostles, and it has a massive impact in the city of Jerusalem as people are saved and turned to the Lord. Then it radiates out from Jerusalem to the surrounding area of Judea. That is what is recounted in chapters 1 to 7. Then in chapters 8 and 9, we see the gospel go out to the next concentric circle, to the surrounding area of Samaria. If you want, you've got Jerusalem in the middle, then Judea, and now the next outward circle is Samaria. Look at how that section of chapters 8 and 9 comes to a conclusion in chapter 9, verse 31. This little summary statement that Luke gives to us. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee And Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So by that stage in the book of Acts, the gospels impacted Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and you're ready for it to go to the ends of the earth. And that's what you get from chapter 10 onwards. We get the gospels' concentric circles moving out to the ends of the earth. And there are two episodes that prepare us for that. First, Peter's vision and ministry among Cornelius and the Gentiles in chapter 10, running into the first part of 11. And then second, the establishment of a new church in the very diverse and cosmopolitan city of Antioch. That city then becomes a missional hub that we see in chapter 13, leads the way in taking the gospel on out to the nations. So the section that we are in this evening recounts the establishment, the planting of a new church in the city of Antioch. Now, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. It had a population of about 500,000 people. It was very diverse, full of different uh, religious groups. It was the largest and most influential city in the region north of Israel. The story of this church in Antioch being planted is recounted for us in three parts. If you look down at the text there in chapter 11, you'll see in verses 19 to 21, we learn of fruitful evangelism from Christians who moved into the area of Antioch. Second, verses 22 to 26, we read of those who have been converted through that evangelism, gathered into a local church, and they grow and mature through the influence of godly leaders, Barnabas and Saul. Third, 
then we read in verses 27 down to 30 of the church becoming outward-looking and kingdom-minded. And that's going to be really important as we come to the end of this message. Now, why is this account in our Bibles? In a sense, from uh, 11, 18, you could jump over to chapter 12 and not really miss much in the flow of the narrative in the book of Acts. So Luke has very intentionally slotted this account in of the planting of the church in Antioch because it becomes such a significant missional hub throughout the rest of the book of Acts. But I think this account is in our Bible, I believe it's in our Bible, to show us how the kingdom of God advances in the world. Now, why is it helpful to be reminded of that? Well, in a day of rising secularism, there's a temptation to feel like we need to become gimmicky as church leaders or to dull down the gospel edge to keep the church going. A few years back, there was a movement called the seeker-sensitive movement. And in many ways, the instinct to be seeker-sensitive is good. A seeker-sensitive movement is when you're trying to be sensitive to those who are kind of interested on the outside, try to reduce the barriers and the friction that would stop them coming into the church. But in many ways, the seeker-sensitive movement lost its way, and people and churches ended up diluting and dulling down the gospel message to keep people coming in through the doors. It turned into literally the the smoke machines and the lights and the entertainment and almost became very worldly with a very dulled down version of the gospel so that we'd keep things going. Well, this passage reminds us that God has showed us how his kingdom advances in the world. And we don't actually need anything really new or gimmicky. We just need to do the basics well. In the Great Commission, Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's evangelism and missions. Then, when people get saved, teach them to obey all I've commanded you. See them baptized, gathered into local churches, see them mature through good preaching and teaching. And then see that they become kingdom-minded. And the Lord Jesus said, and I'll be with you until I come. It has been said that the Irish rugby team are as good as they are because they're a team that do the basics very well. And I think that's true. Well, faithful and fruitful churches are churches that do the basics well and they trust in the Lord to turn on the power by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what a faithful church does. So as we walk down through the establishment of the church at Antioch, what I want to do is just simply draw out three marks of this healthy, great commission church Many of you will know Mark Dever wrote a book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Well, I'm boiling that all down to three this evening. Three marks of a healthy Great Commission church. This is what we want to be at Great Vic. Three very simple things. If we do them well, and if we look to the Lord for power, we will become a faithful and fruitful missional hub in Belfast that does not just bless Belfast, but in fact becomes a blessing to the world. Mark number one, a healthy church speaks of Jesus 
and seeks to gather people into the local church. So here's one thing we want to do well. We want to speak of Jesus and we want to seek to gather people in to local churches. Verse 19 begins with Luke telling us about a group of Christians who had to flee Jerusalem because of persecution that arose when this man called Stephen was martyred for his faith in Jesus. Remember what we read back in chapter 8, verse 1, after Stephen was killed. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And the believers were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So here, in chapter 11, verse 19, we pick up what happened to those scattered believers. They traveled to different places. And as they went to those places, in line with their understanding of the Old Covenant, and not having heard of Peter's experience with Cornelius, many of these believers just shared the good news of Jesus among the Jewish populations in the places they went to. But in verse 20, we're told that in Antioch, this city that was so diverse, some of these Christians started to speak to non-Jews also. That is to a group known as the Hellenists, Greek-speaking non-Jews, pagans, idol worshippers. And how does Luke summarize what those Christians were doing in Antioch? Well, at the end of verse 20, he just says simply, they were preaching the Lord Jesus. Some people have said they were just, the people who went out were just gossiping the gospel. And we see the result of this in verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So that's the first little installment of the church being planted in Antioch. We see these Christians scattered because of persecution, arriving in Antioch. They speak of Jesus, and God's power is with them, and people get saved. Now let's draw out a few lessons just at the end of this first little scene in our narrative. Lesson one. Unexpected events that uproot and unsettle us can actually be part of God's plan to give us a new field of service for the Lord. These believers living in Jerusalem and settled there perhaps did not envisage being uprooted and forced to flee from their homes because of the persecution associated with Stephen. They were under such pressure that they had to flee from Jerusalem and find a new place to live, like refugees. Yet this was God's way of expanding the next concentric circle of his mission outwards. Under the sovereignty of God, the persecution and the scattering that happened in Jerusalem became God's means of propelling the gospel forward into unreached places and peoples. Sometimes things can happen in life that we find difficult and we don't understand. Losses of jobs, bereavement, sicknesses, big life events. These things can thrust us out into new circles of people that we never thought we would have met. And yet, under the sovereignty of our God, who never makes mistakes in directing us, these very experiences of, of uprooting can be part of God's plan to advance his kingdom through us. 
But we have to be careful because sometimes when we experience those uprooting circumstances, sometimes we can be so marked by grumbling about the change of circumstances that we can miss this. I think it's important for us to be thinking wherever God has placed us, we can be asking ourselves, how can I be salt and light right now where God has placed me? That's what those Christians did in Antioch. They arrived and they just started being salt and light for the gospel, even though they'd been uprooted out of their comfortable home in Jerusalem. And they became God's agents of transformation just where God put them. So lesson one, unexpected events can unsettle us, but they can be part of God's plan to give us a new field of service for the Lord. Lesson two, wherever you find yourself, that is your mission field and your area of service for Jesus. So seek to speak of Jesus. That is what evangelism is. It is speaking of Jesus. People may want to pull us into debates about modern ethical day issues, try to distract and sideline us. Our goal must always be to bring the conversation back to Jesus. Wherever they start, see it almost as like a funnel to try and bring people back to Jesus. So if people start saying, oh, you Christians are against the redefinition of marriage, well, you could say something like, well, well, we understand that marriage is actually a reflection of Jesus Christ and his bride, his church. Let me tell you about that. And you keep funneling the conversation back to Jesus. Wherever you find yourself, be one of those people that gossips the gospel. Lesson three, what we all need more than anything to be faithful as salt and light people where God has placed us, what we need more than anything is to be people with the hand of the Lord upon us. Now this is really important and really significant for a variety of reasons. If you look there at verse 21, we read, the hand of the Lord was with them, with those who were communicating the gospel in Antioch. And this is an interesting phrase, as I've said, for a number of reasons. But it's an interesting phrase, the hand of the Lord was on them, because it appears at different parts of the Bible. For example, it's characteristic of uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in Scripture. So for example, Ezra 7, 6, we read of Ezra, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Verse 9 of the same chapter, the good hand of God was upon Ezra. Once again, Ezra writes later in the chapter, I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. Then also in the book of Nehemiah, this phrase is found. Nehemiah 2, 8, the king... Nehemiah says, the king granted me what I asked for because the good hand of the Lord my God was upon me. Now, the hand of the Lord upon us. This seems to describe an experience of when God's blessing and power rests on our kingdom service so that it is very effective and fruitful. This is something we should long for in our lives and in our work for God and in the ministries of this church. Is this something you are concerned for? Have you prayed about this? Imagine the hand of the Lord on our Sunday school teachers. Blessing in their kingdom service to make them effective 
and that power from God is present as our Sunday school teachers with the hand of God upon them teach our children the gospel. Or imagine the hand of the Lord on us in our evangelism as we go from door to door. We hold hope explored. Imagine it was said as people were writing of us and they held three Tuesday nights in a row and the hand of the Lord was upon them and many turned to the Lord and were saved. That's how you pray for hope explored. That the hand of the Lord would be upon us. That's what we need more than anything in our building project. More than anything. That's what the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, that's what the book of ne- books of Nehemiah and Ezra are all about. How could they rebuild the city when it was in ruins? How could Ezra rebuild the spiritual side of the nation? Because the hand of the Lord was upon Ezra and Nehemiah. They saw the walls built, the, the city spiritually rebuilt. How will transformation come to Great Vic? How will we see anything significant happen? The hand of the Lord must be upon us. How do you get the hand of the Lord on you? Well, if only it were that easy for me to say, do this and that will happen. It doesn't work like that. God bestows his hand of power by his sovereign grace. But it does seem to go hand in hand with walking closely with the Lord And depending on him for fruitfulness in ministry demonstrated through prayerfulness. So there's this first little scene and some wonderful lessons that flow out of it. These disciples were uprooted, but it was God's means of bringing them into a new place to preach the gospel. Where they went, they spoke of Jesus. And best of all, we read that the hand of God was upon them, and that is what made their ministry effective. That is what this pastor longs for in his ministry. So Mark 1 of a healthy local church. That church speaks of Jesus and the church members. That's what I mean, the people. We speak of Jesus, and we seek to gather people into local churches. Right, let me just ask. How are we doing at this in Great Vic? How are you doing in this area of life, evangelism? How are you doing in thinking about how God has uprooted and moved you? How are you doing with gossiping the gospel? How are you doing with longing for God's hand to rest on your life and ministry just where he's placed you? Mark 2, healthy churches recognize the church as the main center for Christian growth and maturity. We recognize the church as the main center for Christian growth and maturity. You might be asking after that first point I made, where'd you get this and gather them into local churches bit? Well, it's here in verses 22 to 26. For this is where we see the converts at Antioch gathered into one local assembly, a local church. Verse 22. We read that as the group of believers started to grow in Antioch, word got back to the Jerusalem church, which was kind of like the mothership of the new church plants that were happening round and about. 
And just like the Jerusalem church sent Peter and John to Samaria to help and give some oversight when the church grew there in chapter 8, now we learn of the Jerusalem church sending Barnabas, who we've already met in this book, the son of encouragement, to offer help, instruction, and encouragement. In verses 23 and 24, we read this little description of Barnabas' ministry. We read of his ministry, his character, and his effectiveness, and his recognition of his limitations. His ministry. We read, he came and saw the grace of God. That's verse 23. He was glad when he saw it, and he exhorted all the believers to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. There's a lot we could say about that little phrase, but just observe it at this point. He encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, back in chapter 4, verse 36, we're told that Barnabas' name literally meant encourager. And that's what he did in this new church plant in Antioch. He was delighted to see what God was doing in Antioch, and he just got straight to encouraging them. You could imagine Barnabas standing up in front of them saying, keep going, my brothers and sisters. Be faithful. Live with purpose for the Lord. That was his ministry, one of exhortation and encouragement. Let's ask again, is this part of our lives? How are we engaged in encouragement? Second, after reading of his ministry, we read of his character. Verse 24, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And then we read of his effectiveness, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then in verses 25 and 26, we see Barnabas recognizing his limitations. The church at Antioch is growing at a rate that is too much for him. He realizes he can't shepherd the flock all by himself. He needs to get help. So in verse 25, we read that Barnabas goes out to find Saul. We've read of his conversion already in this book and that he had grown and learned so much about the gospel and the things of God. Well, Barnabas goes out, finds Saul and says, Saul, God's doing incredible work at Antioch. You need to come with me and help me minister the word there. He went out, he found a helper, and he brought him in so that the two of them could get stuck into preaching and teaching. I've written in my notes, kind of like when I went to Cambridge to find Simon. (laughs) Now, it's not a perfect uh, comparison by any means, but he saw the growth. He was sort of feeling like, I can't do this by myself, and brought a helper in, a gifted helper who's been such a blessing. And in verse 26, we read that for a whole year, they met with, notice, the church and taught a great many people. Isn't that lovely? Out of nothing, the persecution led to Christian scattering. They gossiped the gospel just where they were. People got saved, and now there's a church. They met with the church, and Barnabas and Saul together as a team taught the young fledgling church. And then we read in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So after the planting through the evangelism comes the consolidation, rooting and maturing through faithful Bible teaching. Let's draw out again a few lessons from this scene in the narrative. 
Lesson one, notice how important godly character is in spiritual leaders. We're told that Barnabas' ministry flowed out of his godly character and that this led to his effectiveness in gospel ministry. Now, I can't resist going here. Some of you know I've been studying the 18th century Baptist pastor Andrew Fuller for the last three years. Back in October 1787, Andrew Fuller preached at the ordination service for a new pastor, a man named Robert Faulkner. Fuller's sermon was based on Acts 11, verse 24. And when I was looking at sermons that I wanted to preach in this series, I said to Simon, I want to do that one. (laughs) Fuller's sermon was entitled, The Qualifications and Encouragement of a Faithful Minister Illustrated by the Character and Success of Barnabas. That's a long title but it's not long compared to some of his colleagues in his day. But in the midst of that sermon, Andrew Fuller made a statement that revealed his foundational conviction about Christian ministry. Fuller said this, eminent spirituality is usually attended with eminent usefulness in the ministry. Now, what did he mean by that? By eminent spirituality, he meant a person's walk with God, their godliness, their character. And Fuller unpacked how Barnabas demonstrated eminent spirituality. He was godly. Fuller says, first we're told Barnabas was a good man. This speaks of his character. And then he went on to say, hundreds of ministers have been ruined by indulging a thirst for the character of the great man while they have neglected the far superior character of the good man. Fuller was saying so many young pastors, they go out and seek to be the next celebrity pastor. They want to be the great man. And they fail to just do the basics. Be a good man. Be godly. Be a man of character. And of course, this is not just for ministers, because we are all called to follow our leaders as they seek to follow Christ. So we are all called to be those who seek to cultivate godly character in our lives. Seek to be the good man, the good woman. Have good, faithful Christian character just where God has placed you. But then next, Fuller says, we're told Barnabas was full of the Spirit. And Fuller says, oh, how necessary is an unction and anointing from the Holy One. Being full of the Holy Spirit will give a holy tincture to your preaching. What he meant, there was a holy taste, the aroma of, of holiness and God's power about your preaching. If you're a man full of the Spirit. He went on to say the Holy Spirit will give a spiritual savor to all your conversation. We want to be people who are full of the Spirit. And then finally, Fuller points out that Barnabas was full of faith. For Fuller, this meant not only being rooted and grounded in the truth of the gospel, but also learning to live daily upon the gospel. Now, I could say a lot more about that, but I've, that's me restraining myself. If you want to read 60, 70 pages on that, my whole thing's built on his statement, eminent spirituality leads to eminent usefulness in the ministry. So you want to be eminently useful as a Christian, strive to be eminently spiritual. Walk with God. This is all emphasized in this lesson 
to show how important godliness is in leadership. That's why we're given this little character statement on Barnabas. Leaders are to be exemplars of what we should all seek to be like. So ask yourself, how am I doing? Would it be said of us that we are good people, full of spirit, full of faith? Notice how important godliness is in spiritual influence and leadership. Lesson two in this section. Notice the primacy of teaching for the growth and maturing of the local church. Think of what happened here at Antioch. God's power moved through the preaching of the gospel so that in verse 21 we're told a great number turned to the Lord. Then in verse 24, a great many people were added to the Lord. They're lovely descriptions of conversion, by the way. You have a big group of new converts in a rapidly growing church. What does that gathering of new converts need more than anything to move them on to maturity and to ensure that the whole thing isn't just a flash in the pan? They need solid, faithful, consistent teaching. Grounding in God's word. Barnabas realized this. And he realized that he didn't have the capacity to do this by himself. So he goes off and he looks for Saul, who we know becomes Paul, is named as Paul. And, Saul, and Barnabas knows that Saul has the gifts for this situation. And for verse, in verse 26 we read, For a whole year they met with the church and they taught They taught a great many people. That's how churches mature and grow. Faithful preaching and the application of the gospel to everyday life. That's how churches grow. Faithful expository ministry ministry of the word. Prayed for in the power of the spirit. Listen, when I first came to Great Vic, I had three P's that I used to govern everything that I wanted my ministry to be about a great Vic. Preaching, prayer, pastoral care. That was it. I had nothing else up my sleeve. And Isn't it amazing that God has seen in his grace to put his hand on us and to bless these simple things? We are bucking the trend. You know You know all too well. I preach for a long time. And most people are saying, that day is done. No one wants that anymore. And yet truth loves truth. A true work of God in the heart will always long for good truth from the pulpit. Always. Truth loves truth. And don't worry, I do recognize that that can be presented in a concise way. I'm working on it. But let's recognize this. We gather together to grow together. The church is like a grow bag. Have you ever seen those grow bags that you cut open and everything's in it to make your tomato plant grow? Everything's here to make you grow to maturity. Are you committed to growing and maturing in this local church? You get out what you put in. Don't find yourself on the margin. Move to the heart. That's how you grow. Then third lesson from this little section is, notice how we're told there at the end of verse 26 that in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. What does this tell us? This tells us that this group of new believers stood out in their culture. 
In a diverse culture where there were lots of religious groups, they stood out in the culture, and people didn't know initially how to label them. They're not Jews. They're not really a branch of Judaism. They're not Hellenists. They're not pagan worshippers. What will we call them? Do you know what? They seem to be banging on about this Jesus Christ one. Let's just call them Christ's ones. They were so identified with Jesus in their surrounding culture that the only fitting name for the surrounding culture to give them were Christ's ones. Though it perhaps probably initially was a bit of a derogatory comment. What a compliment. Christ's ones. I spoke to a friend from Turkey yesterday who's from Antakya, which is modern-day Antioch. And I told him about my sermon. He's a Muslim. And he was really interested because he's from Antioch. And I said, well, I've been reading about it, and apparently it was a very diverse city, and he said, it's exactly the same today. Christ ones in Antioch. We are called to be a subculture of Christ followers in the wider world. We don't just change like chameleons to blend in with the culture we're in. We're supposed to stand out like salt and light as we live kingdom-shaped lives in our culture. Even though the name Christian is very wide today, I would encourage you, be a person that really shows the world what it means to be a Christian. Christ's one. So, there's our first two marks. Evangelism, consolidation. I'll go really quick through the third one. The third thing that's really striking about the church at Antioch is they sought to become more and more outward-looking and generous. We must seek to become more and more outward-looking and generous as a church. I've given this a name that I've used before. We must seek to practice kingdom-minded connectedness. Now, it might surprise you there in verse 27, 28, to read of the ministry of this prophet Agabus. But we have to remember, prophets were active and a key part of the early church. He foretells a period of famine, which we, can, we, we know happened later. Luke records it for us. It happened later during the reign of Claudius. So in light of the fact that this famine is coming upon the saints in Jerusalem, in verse 29 we learn that the disciples in Antioch commit to sending relief and to partnering with those in Jerusalem through sending them financial aid to help them in their time of need. In verse 29, we read, they determined everyone according to his ability to send relief. And then in verse 30, and they did so, sending a financial gift by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I think this is beautiful. Healthy churches are not end-of-the-line train stops with blessing. Healthy churches don't just receive and receive and receive and grow and grow and grow. They grow by becoming outward-looking and by being generous in their kingdom heart for works outside of themselves. We grow when we become generous in kingdom-minded connectedness. Now, I've used this illustration before, but I'll use it again. You know that there are two main bodies of water in Israel. There's the Sea of Galilee that has the River Jordan flowing into it and out of it, and it's fresh and full of life. And then it flows on down into the Dead Sea. It has a channel into it, but no channel out of it. And it's called the Dead Sea for a reason. It's dead. If we are all a church that just keeps receiving from people, and we don't start giving out, then 
perhaps the blessing could stop with us. When we are called to receive blessing and be people who give blessing, I long for this to be part of what we do at Great Vic today as it has been done in the past. You know, many of you, that I really long for us to build a connection, a firm gospel partnership with a church in the south of Ireland. There's so many churches in the north and so many in the churches in the south. Pastors speak to me and say we could do so more if we had some financial support for an assistant or for an intern or something like this. I wonder, could we dream of a fund that we could start to support ministry in the likes of BlackRock Community Church in Dublin? Wouldn't that be exciting to be receiving blessing and giving away blessing, even in the midst of a building project? We've been blessed. We've received from churches like Northwoods who've contributed money financially to facilitate Paddy's internship among us. Crossway Community Church have given gifts, major financial gifts to help us in our building project. We do not want to be just receiving, receiving, receiving. We want to start thinking and continue to think, how can we start to, to give? Because that is a place of blessing. But it begins with an outward-looking attitude. That's what the church at Antioch did. Think of them, just established, limited resources. They hear the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are struggling. They all say, well, let's give them some money. Let's give them support. And they determine to do so, and they do so. Their generosity and compassion must have been a great encouragement to the church in Jerusalem. So that's the last mark of the maturing church at Antioch. They were generous and kingdom-minded and connected in the work, not just thinking of themselves. And I think that's really, really exciting. So let me draw this to a close. There we have it, three marks of a healthy local church. Evangelism, gathering for teaching and growth, kingdom-minded connectedness. If we can do the basics well, And the Lord's hand is on us. Let us just see the God who does immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. Because that's our God. It's incredibly exciting to be a part of this church at this time. But here's where I want to close. Every one of us is called to play our part in creating this kind of culture in this local church. In chapter 13, we're going to learn how the church at Antioch becomes this incredible missional hub that starts sending out its best on mission trips. Saul and Barnabas both go. They send their best to go and reach the nations for the gospel. One of the things that I keep recognizing is happening here at the moment is We keep raising up these wonderful uh, people and they keep going, like Shane to Portugal and Nicola now training for mission cross-culturally. And that's a good thing. It's hard, but it's a good thing. Healthy churches send out their best. So let's keep praying and dreaming and asking ourselves, how am I contributing to the health of this local church? Let's pray. 
Father, thank you so much for the opportunity just to enjoy this wonderful passage. You've included it here just so that we can delight in how you advance your kingdom in the world. And as we said at the beginning, Lord, it's not rocket science. Speak of Jesus, gather believers, teach them faithfully, seek to be kingdom-minded. Oh, Lord, we pray that as we seek to do this, we pray you'd put your hand upon us. You have had your hand upon us, but we ask again you would just press your hand down upon us even more firmly with blessing and that you would do more than we could ever ask or imagine so that we would become, as we are now standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us and set a tone, that we would become in our generation a missional hub that brings blessing not just to the surrounding area of Belfast, not just to our Jerusalem, not just to our Judea and Samaria of the Republic of Ireland, but indeed to the ends of the earth. We look to you to do great things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to close uh, singing a lovely prayer that asks that God would shape our minds so that we would have the mind of Christ as we go out into this onlooking world. So let's stand together and sing. of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Please do.